Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Some breaking news happening in the media world. A Titanic event, maybe not that Titanic. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch is officially stepping down as the chairman of Fox and News Corp. Here's what he writes in a memo to colleagues. Dear colleagues, I'm ready to let you know I've decided to transition to the role of chairman emeritus at Fox and News. For my entire professional life, I've engaged daily with news and ideas that will not change. The headline is that he will be turning all responsibilities over to his son, the sole runner of the company, Lachlan Murdoch. He writes, quote, my father firmly believed in freedom. Lachlan is absolutely committed to this cause. Self-serving bureaucracies are seeking to silence those who would question their provenance and purpose. Elites have contempt for those who are not members of their rarefied class. Most of the media is in cahoots with those elites peddling political narratives rather than pursuing the truth. Bit rich coming from the multi-billionaire mm. um, who has made really the same business as doing the exact same thing, but for other people... <laughs> Hey, you know, who amongst us uh, has done that? It does, of course, set a little the bit stage of projection there. for a major succession-related drama um, because Lachlan will be in charge of the company for now. But the 92-year-old Murdoch, whenever he dies, there's actually a clause, I believe, in his truster as well, whereas four surviving children will all have equal voting shares for the future of the company. James Murdoch, one his other son, is very dis much disagrees with Lachlan and with the future of Fox News and News Corp. He's very much more like a Hillary Clinton-type liberal supporter and would probably be more likely to either sell it off or to change the editorial direction of the company. Apparently, the other two um, children are probably more inclined to 
agree with James, but there's no real way to change this. So it really is like the drama from six. But yeah. as long as he's alive, Lachlan will remain in charge. So but it may not be that long. succession fans, I guess yeah. uh, James yeah. is more like Siobhan. Yes. Is that the idea? Well, yeah. And Lachlan is like... Siobhan was an actually interesting character, though. James appears to me to just be like your standard variety, multi-billionaire son lib. I'm sure you know? there are layers there, yeah. Blogger. I'm sure there are layers yeah. there. But uh, yeah. I mean, the idea is that Lachlan was like buddies with Tucker right. and sort of embraced yes. this Trumpy persona, at least. He was more comfortable with that. To an extent. So, um, yeah, so you can slot in whichever right. succession character you feel right. like he fits. But at least for now, we have an answer of who is going to take over the reins uh, in the immediate future. And obviously, I mean, this really does come at a critical juncture for Fox News in particular, mm -hmm. because the entire cable business and certainly the entire cable news business is on a on a downswing, um, probably a permanent one. You know, they're trying to figure out their streaming and how they continue to compete in uh, a new era. And then obviously on the political front they threw all in with Ron DeSantis and didn't work Ron DeSantis is in fifth place in New Hampshire right now like his decline has been precipitous he clearly he's you know maybe barely hanging out into second place in most polls but is not even close to challenging Trump for the brass ring here and so you know that bet was off they're still continuing to be in legal trouble over their coverage and stop the steal nonsense. They're still embroiled in lawsuits there. So that has been an issue for them. So there's a lot of um, questions about the future of this organization, how they position themselves in a potentially next Trump administration throughout the Republican primary, how they position themselves for the future with streaming, et cetera. Um, they have you know, very all the cable news companies have a very elderly audience base. So that's a risk for them as well. So does come at a um, kind of pivotal moment for the industry and Fox News included. Just think back to our focus group. Only one person said Fox News was really got there. That's right. One out of eight. So that tells Our you everything Republican you need to know. Republican base voters. Yeah. Ten years ago, one every single Fox one News. would have said Fox. Twenty years ago, they would be like Fox, Fox, Fox. They would have lame, named every single one of their favorite shows. That time is dead, guys. The internet has completely taken over. So yeah, he's got a he's got a tough thing going for him. If I were them, I mean, Fox is not where the few, I mean that's where the money was, but. Obviously, the the one bet of their entire portfolio that I think is the best is the Wall Street Journal, you know, that they still have their hands on. But that's not how they look it over there because it doesn't print the same amount of cable carriage fees. He's got a, he's got a lot on his hands, I think, for the future. Indeed. I did a monologue about the sound of freedom not that long ago, uh, but there's been some very troubling developments with the leadership of the organization that was behind it, specifically Tim Ballard. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. So Tim Ballard has now had to depart the Operation Underground Railroad after a sexual misconduct investigation internally. They said, quote, our has de dedicated to combating sexual abuse and does not tolerate sexual harassment or discrimination by anyone inside of the organization. So what they said is that while Tim Ballard allegedly is preparing for a Senate run, Crystal, he, quote, has invited women to act as, quote, his wife on undercover missions which were aimed at rescuing victims of sex trafficking. He would then, quote, allegedly coerce these women into sharing a bed or to showering together, claiming it was necessary to fool traffickers. So obviously that's incredibly creepy behavior. They're a believed, quote, to be higher than seven in terms of the number of women that would account for some employees who are coerced into this. And, uh, you know, the organization itself has uh, 
has distanced himself. They said, quote, he has permanently separated from the organization. We're dedicated to combating uh, sexual abuse. We have retained an independent law firm to, uh, to conduct a comprehensive investigation to all the relevant allegations. What I actually thought was most noteworthy was the Mormon church rang in. Let's put this up there on the screen. The Church of Latter-day Saints actually denounced many of the claims made by uh, Tim Ballard saying, quote, his activities were morally unacceptable and that uh, they had betrayed um, the French. This was after a previous allegation about how he had been um, betrayed and how the president of uh, a church had been has had his name used in terms of Tim's, quote, personal or financial interests. It's pretty rare um, to see the Mormon church actually come out and uh, basically disavow and denounce the claims which were made that basically that the church was standing by him. As I said, the backdrop of all this is he wants to run for Senate in Utah. And then at the same time uh, with other things dropping, let's put this up there on the screen, one of the producers behind the film, quote, held an allegedly underage trafficking victim's breast during an and was found during an investigation for sexual misconduct during one of these investigations and or trips that were made um, with uh, to go into rescue victims of human trafficking. So some contrary behavior to what was shown in the film, Crystal. I think to say the least. Indeed. Yeah. And listen, to be clear, Tim Ballard uh, denies everything. Denies the allegations. Says he did nothing wrong, that they had really strict guidelines in place, et cetera, et cetera. But you now have a lot of women mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, effectively said very similar behavior that they experienced. There was a letter that was going around throughout the Utah philanthropic community, basically warning about this HR investigation that was occurring within his own organization, which again, he has now been forced out of, um, into these sexual harassment allegations. Part of what the letter said is it was ultimately revealed through disturbingly specific and parallel accounts that Tim has been deceitfully and extensively grooming and manipulating multiple women for the past few years with the ultimate intent of coercing them to participate in sexual acts with him under the premise of going where it takes and doing whatever it takes to save a child. So the allegation here is that effectively he would use these women's real concern about trafficking victims and say, well, you know, how far would you go? to make sure that these kids are okay. Well, I guess you have to, you know, sleep in the bed with me. I guess you have to shower with me. I guess you have to pretend you're my wife for this trip. Those are the allegations. And I think, you know, the fact that he was pushed out of his own organization says something. And there's also, there is a long documented track record of him being caught in overt lies about some of the work that his organization has done, um, including, you know, things that he has told Congress about specific Uh, trafficking survivors, the details of which he made up, the involvement of his organization with these um, trafficking survivors he also invented and embellished. So there were some red flags about this dude already, even in advance of these allegations. And then the other thing that, um, you know, within the world of organizations that are genuinely working to combat um, human trafficking, there were a lot of questions about their tactics. And that ties into the other allegations about this executive yeah. producer and how he ends up, you know, groping this uh, maybe Allegedly, underage, yeah. potentially underage right. 16-year-old, potentially uh, sex trafficking victim, is the the other organizations say, listen, part of what you're doing here is you're actually creating more demand mm. for sex trafficking and in particular underage sex trafficking victims by going into these communities and the tactics that you're using. So 
there were a lot of red flags. That doesn't mean you can't like the movie. That doesn't mean that you can't really support the core underlying yes. mission. But just in terms of these particular individuals being heroes, a lot of problems. I think that's the that's the key point, right? Which is that the movie was popular um, for a reason. It was actually one of the biggest films in South America as well. Like a lot of people, the idea behind it really resonated in terms of a problem, probably which is very present. But that the people behind it, you know, people behind it at the very least have not conducted themselves in the most professional manner, regardless of whether it's true or not. And I actually think that's a shame for the organization. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people be like, "This is a witch hunt," and all of that. And I'm like, listen, you know, you read these are people who are in the organization who agreed with the cause, who it's like, they're not like liberals who or something like- Who agreed so much yeah, that they agreed, were on these trips. They were yeah. on the trips, who were involved, the Church of Latter-day, like the freaking Mormon, you're accusing them of being like liars and, uh, and working against, yeah, yeah, it's like, what are we talking about here? Uh, anyway, let's all just be honest. Let's have an, uh, a discussion, especially because I know that the film resonated with so many people. That doesn't mean though that it's all about real life. So important to always keep that in mind and we'll see you guys later. We love history over here and Crystal actually suggested this. So I decided to do a little bit of a dig and uh, give everyone the facts. So this is some fascinating stuff released from the Vatican archives. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. A new letter shows that Pope Pius XII probably knew about the Holocaust much earlier than the Vatican has ever admitted to. So this letter, it was sent actually in 1942, um, and it warns about Nazi attempts explicitly to exterminate Jews in the Holocaust. The letter, uh, which was reproduced, shows that years before uh, the Vatican has previously maintained that they knew about the uh, mass extermination campaign against Jews in the Holocaust, that a priest, a German American, sorry, a German uh, Catholic priest, had given a heads up to the Vatican that, quote, 6,000 Poles and Jews a day were being killed, quote, in SS furnaces at the Belzec camp near Rava Ruska, which was then part of German-occupied Poland, mm. now in Western Ukraine. Apparently, uh, they also referenced uh, Auschwitz and Dachau, some of the most infamous and worst death camps in the entire Holocaust. Now, the reason why this is very significant is because there's been always a lot of debate about the Vatican and how they handled uh, World War II and specifically Nazi Germany. And so what this brings up is the fact that the Pope at that time actually never spoke out um, against Hitler while he was in power. Now, the key part of that, though, is that while he didn't, yes, technically do that, the Vatican has always argued that they used diplomacy to try and prevent a Nazi backlash, that really what they did is they worked like behind the scenes, there's always been a lot of controversy uh, around this um, because there's questions about like the Pope at that time's motives themselves. The allied powers actually begged the Vatican to get involved. Um, I don't know. I mean, after reading this, it does seem pretty clear. Like you knew exactly what was going on in yeah. December of 1942. At the same time, I mean, like I'm like somewhat sympathetic, I guess, because it was a crazy situation. They, uh, the Nazis had long been like anti-Catholic, but politically there was some interesting stuff going on between these two parties when the Nazis um, rose to power. But then of course they were also going after, in some cases, priests and others who were working um, in the resistance movements like in France. So I don't know, maybe in their justification, I'm assuming is they didn't want to invite like explicit backlash against the church. Like that's, with, that's what they're saying. That's their yeah, spin. Right. I mean, I don't know. To me, it seems pretty clear cut. Like you knew they were death camps and you didn't say anything about it. So, and there, it's also interesting. Um, 
This, as you said, it was found in the Vatican archives in letters, correspondence that they said was like haphazardly stored. Mm -hmm. And the letter seems to not just be a one-off. It seems to be a series of correspondence between this individual and the Pope. So the idea being that, you know, there were letters before this, even before this letter now that we've found that they have not let yet located, either they've been, you know, misplaced forever or they're somewhere else in the Vatican archives that haven't been turned up yet. Right. But the idea being that, like, this wasn't even your first signal. You knew what was going on even before this. You were in this ongoing correspondence with this individual. So to me, it seems pretty hard to justify. Yeah, especially because the allied powers were literally begging them to do it. There was a, actually an interesting new book that just came out last year, a guy named David Kurtzer. It was called The Pope at War. It really puts the uh, it puts the Pope on blast. And he's oh, like, really? Look, yeah. I mean, he, he didn't have this document, but he knew and inferred enough. What effectively he concluded is, quote, he thought he could negotiate with Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler and temper Nazi hatred with diplomacy while the Pope acted carefully, quote, amid initial concerns that Axis powers may eventually control Europe, Pius never changed his approach, even as evidence and pleas for the Vatican to take a stand mounted. So, quote, as a moral leader, he must be judged a failure. Also, because he was in power, I mean, you know, it's, it's a crazy situation. He came to power, I think it was like March 1939, and he died in almost 1960, like 1958. So he was the Pope for almost 20 years. And so even afterwards, apparently, they did quite a bit to just, just uh, cover up some of the things that were going on. And even his predecessor, they never really knew what to do with Hitler and with all the rise of power until they explicitly turned against the church because they hated communists just as much as some right. of the German conservatives. Right. They, anyway, there's a lot we could go into here, but uh, the letter itself, fascinating stuff, and uh, I guess just proves really the point of uh, David Kurtzer's entire book, which is like, yeah, this is a huge failure um, on their side. And a lot of the justifications and stuff that they came up with really just don't stand the test of time. Yeah, they don't hold water. Wanted to keep an eye on a very troubling trend in the United States, which we're all aware of, but which the numbers are really stark. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. A new analysis from the CDC of death certificates over the last 20 years shows that obesity as a factor in cardiac deaths has tripled over the last 20 years. So there were 281,000 deaths from heart disease linked to obesity in the last 20 years. The death rate has tripled from 2.2 deaths per 100,000 to 6.6 per 100,000 in the database, which are linked to obesity. And the increase in obesity-related deaths is with the steady decline, actually, of heart disease overall. So the reason why this is troubling is that overall deaths from heart disease are actually down by 18%, but obesity-related heart disease is up by 20. So as obesity continues to be a factor, the advance in medicine and statins and all this other stuff that were used in non-obese cases of heart disease are still going to continue to be a problem. They also show that uh, obesity currently is, a, and this is stunning, 115 million people in the United States are now, as they put it, affected by obese or classified obese themselves. 42% of adults, but the worst part, and this is always the one that kills me, 
20% of children now, according to the CDC. Oh, and the issue really with sad. that figure is that that is just obese. That's not even just BMI um, overweight. And then if you really dig into it, a stunning like 8% or so are uh, like 40 or 50 BMI, like, like incredibly overweight relative to where they should be. And the issue with that is that leads to all kinds of insane conditions like type 2 diabetes with small children, or children, teenagers, and others. I mean, that's just a lifetime of suffering. And it will shorten your, uh, your lifespan, your health span is a disaster. Uh, so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of issues um, that are happening here. And the overall health impact is so stunning and so immense. I saw a recent chart actually that deaths related to sugar and or obesity outstrip any drug in the history of the United States. Jesus. If you classify sugar as an actual drug, which I mean, you know, oh, I, there's a good case there to be made. Like that. we talk a lot about alcohol related deaths, fentanyl related deaths and all this wipes every single one of those, you know, out of the water. I and mean, it's just because it's more, I guess, societally accepted. All right, we don't think of it that way. I mean, probably should. There's, yeah. um, when you see statistics like this, like I saw a map recently that showed the obesity rates by every state. And if you go back to the 90s and look at the same map, the state in the 90s that had the highest obesity rate now is actually a lower than the state now that has the lowest obesity rate. Mm -hmm. Like that's, things have shifted yeah. so much dramatically over time. And when you look at those sort of society-wide numbers, you realize there are big picture systemic things happening here that are so much so much further beyond just, obviously people have agency and I don't wanna tell anybody they can't improve their lives and make their situation better. But I also think people need to cut themselves some slack that this is a massive society-wide trend that is driven by some huge factors. I mean, obviously like big ag, big food, the way we've been like systematically lied to thanks to the corrupting influence of big companies in terms of what actual nutritional guidance should look like and what is actually good for us and what is not good for us. I mean, the sugar lobby has been, and big soda has been a tremendously Horrible. negative impact in our society. And by the way, the Washington Post also had an article about how many of these so-called dietitians are now paid by the food industry yeah. to go on TikTok, to go on Instagram, et cetera, and promote things that, again, are just like flat out lies and further confuse people about how even to make good choices for themselves and for their kids. So there's a lot going on here. I wanted to ask you, Sagar, if mm. you think that Ozempic can be any sort of a realistic like improvement it's a very controversial Let alone take. solution, I, but it can I be an improvement know. in this. I know numbers. doctors who are on one side. I know doctors who are on the other side. I, pers I personally, here's my belief. I do not believe that there can be a quote-unquote medical cure to such a systemic problem. I don't believe in magic solutions. I don't believe in magic pills, and I think there's always a catch. Now, maybe the catch is better than the alternative. So, yeah. for example, people maybe who are like, yeah. yeah, right. So people who are like, well, I took it, and then when I went off of it, I gained my weight back, so that means I have to stay on it forever. And, you know, I mean, that sounds very profitable for Novo Novartisk or whatever, who's the manufacturer. So I just start to get skeptical. There's been previous also reports about, like, muscle mass loss and also by people who use Ozempic, but that could also be biased to the population who wants to you know lose a little bit of weight and gain some muscle we're not talking about the morbidly obese i genuinely don't know i think there needs to be a lot of study but like i said i am just skeptical of some sort of like one size fits all pill solution that you have to take on a consistent basis side effects can be numerous you know there's lots of stuff about and just in general like slowing down your gut when you tell me that and that's the solution i'm just like i don't know man like i, I don't know how 
exactly this all works out. However, that could be better than being morbidly obese yeah. and being 700 pounds. So, you know, maybe that is an answer. I think it's probably a case-by-case -case basis uh, that people can make, especially for people who are morbidly, morbidly obese. I think that is so horrifically bad for you that getting out of that is, you know, is, better, is, is the most imperative thing that you can do for your health. The question then comes for people who are like on the edge, who are overweight and or on the obesity line, like what's the best way to get there? I am still a big believer in the tools like Mother Nature gave us, which is diet and exercise I and mean, it's just very incredibly incredibly hard even for people who are disciplined people who have money willpower and all that the modern environment is not set up for you to, to succeed. succeed and yeah, i just i don't know what the i mean you know we've talked about this it's like when you want to walk ten thousand steps uh yeah if you have any semblance of a desk job it sucks like you'll be like I, it's like 6 p.m you're like okay i gotta go for a one hour and 15 minute walk today yeah um or Carving out moment in your day, and I've been trying to burn like 500 calories of cardio per day on top of any resistance. It takes me like an hour and a half. Now, right. Maybe I'm just slow. Maybe I'm But bad. it's also, I uh, mean, in yeah. other countries yeah. that have rely more on walking, sure. public transportation. Yeah, like when in. I lived in New York City, Absolutely. it was built in. I walked to work every day. Right. It was roughly like, you know, a little over a mile um, in each direction. And so just like built into my day is at least three miles mm -hmm. of walking right. without ever going to the gym. And so when so much of our, like the way our cities and towns are constructed is just about, you know, getting in the car the and car, yeah, there's work. no, there's like basically zero physical activity built into the average yeah. American's day. That's one thing. Then, you know, you have all of the, we, we subsidize things like corn. That's why there's like every type of corn in your food every day, high fructose corn syrup and whatever. Um, we subsidize things that are unhealthy. We make junk food like the cheapest food that you can possibly buy. And then we turn around and wonder like, oh, why is why do we have these skyrocketing obesity rates? And then even, you know, even things like rice. It's like, well, you can make the rice, you can soak the rice, you can put it in the rice kicker, or you can buy that Uncle Ben's five-minute rice. That sounds pretty nice, It's, but it's super processed. And it's like, well, mm. if you're busy, what are you going to do? I have so total sympathy. You know, I see moms and stuff at the grocery store. We've got, like, three screaming children. I'm like, yeah. listen, you know, for you, like, this sucks. Well, that, that is another That's thing, tough. isn't it? Like, yeah. the amount of hours yeah. that we work, how yeah. stretched people are, having to work right. two and three jobs. Like, you think you have time to cook some, no. like, perfect, healthful meal, even if you could afford the yeah. ingredients that that would entail. No, we make it impossible for people to succeed. And then we only look at like the individual part, which them. again, and blame them, which again, listen, I don't, I don't ever want to take away from people the agency to improve their life, to make changes that are going to, to help them in whatever they're going through. But when you only are focused on the like, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps conversation mm -hmm. and you're not looking at these overall trends, I think that can be very dishonest. And I think it can also end up being extremely unhelpful for the people that most need that assistance. Totally agree. New Pew Research Center survey finds that everybody thinks everything sucks. Yes, uh, and for more details on that, basically the breaking <laughs> news is that Americans have correctly assessed the state of America. Yes. <laughs> so this is new research from Pew, we can put the element up on the screen, where majorities of Americans say the political process is dominated by special interests, flooded with campaign cash, and mired in partisan warfare. Elected officials, Pew goes on to say, are widely viewed as self-serving 
and as ineffective. And Pew says that actually this, this study finds, quote, no single focal point for the public's dissatisfaction. There's widespread criticism of the three branches of government, both political parties, as well as political leaders and candidates for office. Now, this is, they say, coming amid historically high levels of voter turnout in national elections. Mm. So they find that contrast to be somewhat interesting. I think it's worth noting some specific results here. Just 4% of U.S. adults say the political system is working extremely well or very well. 4%. That's not just among people who say extremely well. That's extremely well and very well. Uh, Another 23% say it is working somewhat well. About 6 in 10 say there's, they have not too much confidence or no confidence at all in the future of the U.S. political system. Pew says positive views of many governmental and political institutions are at historic lows. Just 16% of the public will say they trust the federal government always or most of the time. That's even including people who say most of the time. Again, usually you can see numbers like that for people saying, oh, I always trust this or that. But you're concluding uh, both of those views. That's extremely bad for America, obviously, it goes without saying. Now, while trust has hovered near historic lows, Pew says, for the better part of the last 20 years, today it stands among the lowest levels dating back nearly seven decades. And more Americans have an unfavorable than favorable opinion of the Supreme Court. That's the first time this has occurred in polling going back to the late 1980s. A growing share of the public dislikes both political parties. Nearly three in 10 express unfavorable views of both parties. The highest share in three decades of polling and a comparable share of adults do not feel very represented by either party. And candidate choices are underwhelming. 63% of Americans say they're dissatisfied with the presidential candidates that have emerged so far. Now, I was actually going to make that point, too, in that we have a uh, leading candidate for the Republican nomination that is not participating in the debate so far. And we also have a president uh, that is currently the sitting president of the U.S. who is not debating, despite actually the majority of his party. It's not, of course, it's, it's, it's normal for the president not to engage in the debates during the primary process, but his voters are on the side of wanting him to debate. <laughs> Most of his own voters think he's too old to be in elected office right now. So you have, even among the party voters for the two main political parties right now, dissatisfaction with the leading candidates, both of those leading candidates clinging to their power. And this is as you have six in 10 Americans saying they have not too much or no confidence at all in the future of the U.S. Ryan, we see numbers like this all of the time. Um, it's, it's no real surprise. You're always going to have some level of distrust um, high with some institutions. You're not always going to have perfect trust across all institutions. But man, these numbers are no. steep. They're really bad. And there are contradictions within these numbers and within the views that pe- people are holding that can't be worked out by the hmm. political system necessarily. And one of them being that essentially the number one thing that people say, uh, besides complaints about politicians, uh, that, that people say to Pew here is that they don't like the way that partisan, that the way that things have become so partisan, that they think that Democrats and Republicans care more about fighting each other than they care about solving uh the problems of the country, like massive numbers of people agree with that obviously true statement. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they also, in other Pew surveys and and somewhat in this one, express their deeply, deeply negative views about the other party. Mm. So they are 
expressing the very thing that they think in aggregate is bad. Is, is bad. Right. But that's, and that's why it can't be worked out because while everybody agrees what the problems are, people disagree on what the solutions are. Mm-hmm. Like everybody agrees that, uh, you know, the two party system stinks, mm-hmm. um, but nobody, nobody no, certainly the parties are not going to agree to dissolve themselves right. and allow in uh, new parties or a multi-party system, nor, nor would there even be a mechanic for that outside of like a constitutional convention. And then everybody agrees that uh, part, partisanship is the problem, but they will say that the, it's the other side sure. that just needs to go away and stop you know, being in the way of things. Well, and this, by the way, is why the whole uh, mansion no labels movement that John yes, Huntsman right. are, are, we've Doesn't talked about Doesn't resolve that contradiction at all. Right, and, and it actually is, it's the exact opposite read. So they look at polls like this, and by the way, Pew did a word bubble of Americans' top description in the current state of politics. Biggest word is divisive, but then the second biggest word is corrupt. Uh, messy, bad, <laughs> polarized, yes. chaos, dysfunctional, crazy. Uh, one of them is just shit, <laughs> which people blurbed out. But like, they look at this and they say, oh, big opening for the no labels movement to the point where they're seriously flirting with a third party presidential bid. Um, and, the, and they really right. are. And what, but what, right, what they're forgetting is two things. One, lots of people who are independents and don't like one of the other parties disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. You got right-wing independents, you got left-wing independents, and then you got ind- independents who are kind of uh, all over the place. And then you have independents who are kind of checked out and are like sort of pay attention to the news, sort of sort of don't, might show up for the election, might not. And to say that all 40% of those people like would then support Joe Manchin uh, through no labels is absurd. And then your point about the corruption and money in politics is key because no labels is funded by dark, Money, like 100%. private equity uh, goons, uh, people that own baseball stadiums, like yeah. secretly writing checks to get uh, this party, this non-party, no labels party, uh, on on the ballot in fifty <laughs> states. Uh, for who? For what? For what purpose? Who knows why? Who, who's to benefit? Who's funding it? And so the idea that you would uh, approach a population that is saying it, it's one of its top concerns is the corruption of politics by mo- by big moneyed interests. Yeah. Then you'd come at them uh, with $70 million in dark money yeah. supporting Joe Manchin and Larry Hogan and Lisa Murkowski or whatever. Yeah. And that they're going to, and that everybody from the socialist left to the like libertarian right who were registered as independents are going to like flock behind that. Right. It's like, Give that money back. You're stealing it from them, but actually, it should all be confiscated. Well, they don't want that. I mean, nobody, like, absolutely nobody wants no that. Points. And when compromises are brokered in Washington, it's by industry, it's by lobbyists. And so, if you're ever hearing Joe Manchin say, "There's like the problem solver caucus," yes, right? That's a um, no labels product. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they have like it, it's it's all just like establishment politicians that are so close to the center on the right and the left that they can right. sit in a room together. It's not bringing you know, Matt Gates together with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, some centrist Josh Gottheimer, right? And like, if have, you can do that, yeah. then talk to us. But you yeah. you actually, what you want to do is relegate both of the populist wings to the fringes right. further. And you want the sort of adults in the room, is what they like to call themselves, to take over. That was the explicit mandate of No Labels. No Labels launched after the Tea Party wave and then surged surged as it, like as if you know it's 50 people giving right. a lot of money uh after bernie sanders and so their argument was the tea party is bad 
Bernie, Bernie Sanders is bad. Is bad. Yeah. You know, let's let's build a wall of money. Right. And keep these angry people out. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they think that, that that's the solution to the crisis now. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's it's also amazing to me that you can have this level. It's like when people say they they lament the level of trust in media. A lot of journalists all the time will be like frothing. They're very upset because trust in media is low. And for me, I'm like, look at this. I'm like, oh, thank God. Like these numbers are low because genuinely, if if numbers and trust in media were high right now, and they've been higher than they should be in the past, but like people have caught on to the media's corruption and lies, that's a good thing. It's bad for the country that the, we, we can't trust the media, but it's good that we recognize we can't trust the media because then you can sort of look to different sources and you can uh, make decisions in a, in a different way. Um, but, then, but then some of those sources have their own uh, agendas and, yeah. and are then just filling a vacuum where, and we're just manipulating people themselves. So this the is, whole thing's a mess. This is all a thinly veiled, uh, well, I don't know, I think you do a pretty good job veiling it, Ryan, but this is all a, a veiled advertisement for Ryan's new mushroom company psychedelic company <laughs> this is all he, he will uh foment yeah, there's, distrust there's, there's, there's no reality so you might as well just enjoy these mushrooms and then he steps into the vacuum <laughs> and sells you <laughs> psychedelics right. uh but in all seriousness there's no answer to this i mean that's like, like that's probably the biggest problem the answer is either no labels um or well, I, I think this wave might be cresting i think and that maybe we can't see it because trump is still around um and he's going to be around for a very long time. But I feel like, at least on the Democratic side, there's a, a lot of people are checking out. Like you, you've seen stories about uh, big donor, big Democratic donors and small Democratic donors are stepping back in a big way. From and I think that part of that is this wave that we saw from 2016 and 17 with, with Trump coming in, and everybody. Be, everybody uh, experiencing politics as this like minute-to-minute -minute phenomenon is unsustainable, mm -hmm. and I think people gradually are kind of pulling back from it. Though they will return through 2024 as Trump, you know, exerts his gravitational force on our on our political field. Uh, but I think that that's obviously that is temporary. Yeah, um, and I think it's possible. It, that we're seeing a fading. Are, on the right, though, are you seeing a, a decoupling a little bit for the connection, or, or are people just as frothing at the mouth as they always were? No, I think it's a, a huge problem on the right because it's so specifically attached to Donald Trump, and the Trump factor looms over absolutely every other conversation. So if you want to have a same conversation that would appeal to the average voter about weaponization of the Department of Justice, you're going to have to be litigating these completely thorny cases against Donald Trump, where some of them it's like, okay, did he do something wrong? Yes. Would they be bringing charges against Biden if he did this? Probably not. And it gets tangled up in these kind of meta discussions instead of the central discussions. And so that means the entire sort of populist movement is specifically tied to one man. And that one man happens to be very unpopular outside of the sort of Trump mm -hmm. base. Uh, he, he might be something that people tolerate and will vote for if their other choice is Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. Uh, but sort of in a broad sense, he's not like a popular, 
you know, someone who's going to like build bridges between uh, right. this this wide swath of voters on the left and the right. Uh, his he's pretty unpopular if you look at his numbers. And, and that's a big problem because it means Republicans who are trying to broaden the base and are trying to let some populism in the door uh, have to contend with that. And that makes the populism unpopular. <laughs> yeah, in the short version of the Pew survey reels, nobody likes this, but this is what we got. We're gonna keep modeling forward. We're gonna keep, yeah, exactly. All right, <laughs> stick around for more modeling. You know, it's funny. You wouldn't tell an employer that you plan to put in so little effort that if you put in any less effort, it would be illegal. And yet, that is exactly what minimum wage is. Uh, and is it possible to live anywhere on a U.S.'s minimum wage and not just subsist, not just barely scrape by, but experience some level of comfort? Because the origin of the minimum wage in the U.S. is a commitment to the idea that if you're working full-time, you shouldn't have to experience poverty. You work 40 hours a week, whatever you're doing, developing software or working on an assembly line or behind a deep fryer, you should be able to relax after work and not worry about whether or not you have enough money to both pay rent and eat. In the late 1800s, sweatshops were a big issue in the US. And one way of combating this was to institute a minimum wage. In 1938, uh, this was set at 25 cents. When FDR was pushing for this legislation, he called it a living wage, saying that no business which depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. And he meant every single business and every single worker, and he went out of his way to clarify living wage as a decent wage. And this was when he was pushing for a minimum wage. So I think it's safe to say that a minimum wage was meant to be a decent wage. Fair day's work for fair day's wage. So now that I've said wage too many times, where do you have to go to live on the U.S. federal minimum wage? Okay, so I'm in New York, and here minimum wage is $15 an hour. If you're working 40 hours a week, you are going to be left with about $1,800 a month after taxes. Well, if you should spend roughly a third of your income on rent, that's $600 a month, uh, which is insane here. Let's see what that gets you. Nothing, which is why New Yorkers spend more like two thirds of their income on rent. So what can we get for less than $1,200? two apartments in the entire city under 1200 at least on this site. But $1,000 for an apartment is really good. So $1,000 plus a subway pass, $300 on food, $200 for electric gas, internet, and your phone. It's gonna be really tough. Even if you find a roommate situation where you can save a few hundred dollars on rent, you're not gonna have much left over at the end of the month to get drinks with friends or see a movie. Obviously, a child is going to be way over budget, definitely don't do that. But you know what? New York, that's one of the most expensive places in the world. There are places in the US, I'm sure, with a way lower cost of living. So where could you live? According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, Arkansas has the lowest cost of living. Median rent for a studio apartment is $528. $860 is what the average person spends on their car and transportation. $250 for food, 
200 for electric gas internet and your phone. If you can delete the car, because you just happen to live near some public transit, that may actually be really cheap. Let's say you are so lucky and you never have to stay at work until 9 or 10 after the bus has stopped running. Well, hey, you could be doing worse. And it just so happens that a living wage in Arkansas is $15.25. Not too far off. One problem though, Arkansas's minimum wage is not $15 an hour, it's 11. But you know what? You're still doing a lot better than all these states that are making $7.25 an hour. Now, as it turns out, only about 2% of the workforce make exactly minimum wage, but that's 1.6 million people. And yes, some of them are teenagers, but most of them are not. And these are only the people making exactly federal minimum wage. There are a lot more people making $7.50, $7.75, $8, an hour, about 14% of all U.S. workers make $15 an hour or less. That's 19 million people. On average, for the United States, if this is the poverty threshold and this is a living wage, this is minimum wage. If you're splitting the rent with someone, it gets easier, but as soon as you add a couple kids to that, the gap between you and poverty gets a little smaller, and the gap between you and comfort gets a lot bigger. So where can you live on 725? Well, Belgium has a lower cost of living. Maybe you could move to Belgium. Belgium's poverty line is 1,366 euros for a single person. The work week there is 38 hours and the minimum wage before taxes is 1,955 euros. For some reason, you move to Belgium and you're working remotely from the US, making the US minimum wage a scenario I can't imagine exists outside of this video, but that's the game we're playing. At $7.25 an hour, it would take almost 72 hours a week to make Belgium's minimum wage. So Belgium is out. The UK also has a lower cost of living. Again, why are you working remote from England making an American's minimum wage? That makes no sense. Uh, evidently, a living wage in the UK is £10.90. The minimum wage there is ten forty-two. So they're lagging behind a little bit as well. And in pounds, the US federal minimum wage comes to 585, which is apparently the minimum wage for 16 year olds there. Not doing so great. Uruguay is pretty affordable. Looks like you can live for as little as 14,000 US dollars there. And as far as I can tell, they won't charge taxes on income that is earned outside the country. But you do still have to pay American taxes on that money earned, so that's too much for us as well. It goes without saying, it's almost impossible to buy a house when you're making minimum wage. It's only the rarest of circumstances that will allow you to pull this off. But this didn't have to be the case. Economist Dean Baker explains that until 1968, the minimum wage not only kept pace with inflation, it rose in step with productivity growth which, according to him, would place minimum wage at more like $24 an hour, which would make it way more possible for a couple, each earning minimum wage, to actually buy a home. Clearly, that is not the timeline we're living in. Okay, so moving down the cost of living list by country, uh, you can live in Taiwan for $1,100 a month, but again, $725 take home is more like $950 a month. 
Cuba, cost of living is 9.95, getting closer. Continuing down the list, the first place that we find that's under 9.50 a month take home is Jordan. The cost of living for a single person with an apartment outside of a city center is apparently $920 a month. Some cursory and lazy research has confirmed this. The point being, if you make $7.25 an hour, there are places you can go where it will be a decent living. Those places just aren't in America. Also, it will be thousands of dollars for you to actually move to those places, so you're definitely trapped here no matter what. Fortunately, there is progress being made uh, in no small part to groups like Fight for 15. States have individually raised their minimum wage and brought more and more people into a higher standard of living. As far as what's going on federally right now, the Republicans have a bill that would raise the minimum wage to $11 an hour, which clearly isn't enough. And it's only for people who can prove citizenship, which means it will exclude the probably 5 million undocumented workers in the US. But you know what? If you're not slipping poison pills and needless cruelty into the bills you're authoring, that takes the whole sport out of legislating, right? But a much better bill was introduced this summer in the Raise the Wage Act of 2023, which would bring the federal minimum wage to $17 an hour by 2028, which is much closer to what we actually need in this country. And that will do it for me. I hope you found this video interesting. I hope you learned something. If you did, make sure you are subscribed to Breaking Points. You can also follow me on Twitter or at my own YouTube channel where I talk about media and politics and things. Liking and sharing always helps. Thank you so much to Breaking Points. Thank you so much for watching, and I will see you in the next one. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.